1: Rosenberg, H. Bomb, Sugar Ray, Pem and John, Brando, the King and I, and the Catcher in the Rye.
2: What a book!
1: So good. Hello
2: again and welcome to episode 21 of We Didn't Start the Fire. The podcast that finds out everything that mattered in the post-war world and everything that explains the way the world is now. All dictated by Billy Joel's imagination and ability to make major global events rhyme. I'm Tom Fordyce.
1: I'm Katie Puckrick.
2: Katie, we go where no other podcast goes. No other podcast has Billy.
1: Nope. And today we are talking about... I would say the original young adult novel by J.D. Salinger, *Catcher in the Rye*. So, is this a book that you have some familiarity with, Tom? Katie, I read
2: uh, *Catcher in the Rye* the first time about twenty-five years ago, and I reread it for this show. Yeah. And you know, sometimes when there's a book you've really enjoyed in your younger years, and when you reread it, you see not only the flaws in the book, but maybe also the flaws in you that enjoyed the book. Oh. You don't get the same satisfaction. I'm going to brandish my copy of Catching the Rye across the studio because I loved it when I read it again last week.
1: Oh, so you embraced your flaws and Salinger's flaws as well. The whole heap. Okay, so the scenario with me reading it as a teenager when I wasn't reading Mad Magazine, as I like to talk about all the time in every single episode because that's where my information about the 20th (laughs) century came into play. Um, I also did read J.D. Salinger from the comfort of my bright yellow beanbag chair. And I found the whole effect so hip, so cool, all that slanguage in the book. I thought that Holden Caulfield was just so laid back and louche and, uh, you know, kind of a, a hipster role model. And boy, was I surprised at my uh, change of perspective when I <laughs> when I read it again, because I had a whole different impression about it. But I'm going to hold fire on my findings because we're wheeling in an expert this week. She is a novelist and a podcaster and, in fact, has just published her very first young adult novel called All Our Hidden Gifts. Welcome, Carolina Donahue.
0: So good to be here in this crummy studio, Oh, you bunch of phonies. Oh, I know.
1: <laughs> crummy, crummy. Already we're getting that Holden Caulfield uh, language going on there. Do you know what? It lives in your head, doesn't it? I find
0: it really hard after Reading this book, you do sort of walk around with your hands in your pockets a bit, yeah. sort of looking at all these crummy old phonies. Yeah, and just killing you with all the behavior. <laughs> yeah, it
1: really kills me. Yeah, and goddamn before everything, that is the the yeah. the the qualifier before anything you say. So, Caroline, your podcast "Sentimental Garbage" is about reevaluating chick lit. So, I'm eager to get your perspective on the dick lit that <laughs> is catcher in the rye. Um, specifically, how the concerns of insecure young men are taken as a little bit more weighty than those of their female counterparts.
0: It's interesting the sort of um the journey that insecure men have gone on in fiction, right? Because it's become somewhat of a cliche now, right? I think if I were doing a podcast on Dicklet, you know, you'd start with Catcher in the Rye, wouldn't you? And then you'd make your way through Martin Amos and then to Nick Hornby and, and, and run the whole gamut. Where it's interesting now because it's become such a cliche. I often meet a lot of young male novelists, um, particularly white young male novelists, and they say they feel like they're not allowed to write about their problems anymore because it's become such a cliche and it's like such a risk to be associated with Holden Caulfield or to be a Holden Caulfield wannabe, which of course
1: Holden would hate. Can you give us a quick overview of Catcher in the Rye? What what do we encounter there?
0: Of course. Um, so Catcher in the Rye came out in the early 50s and is sort of viewed as being sort of a foundational text of what the sort of young adult experience was like during that time period when, although the term teenager existed for a long time, this sort of sense of um, a, a rising majority of people who are consuming a huge amount of pop culture and who were recognised as being in this transitionary period of their lives were beginning to reject sort of traditional... Uh, values and sort of looking for another way. It's the rise of the beats. It's all this. But in the middle of this, we've got Holden Caulfield, who's a 16-year-old boy at a pensy preparatory school. We meet him on the eve as he's about to be thrown out, or he knows he's been thrown out. His parents don't yet know. And he decides that he's going to have a last hurrah and spend three days in New York, spending the last of his money. And then he'll sort of go home, hands in pockets, back to mum and dad. And... What I want to say then is like, you know, oh, and then things go terribly wrong. But things don't go terribly wrong. Holden goes terribly wrong. The whole novel is like watching a sort of a battery-operated toy run out of battery.
2: He is lost, isn't he, for most of the book. And the strange thing rereading it, Katie, was how little happens, really. Like if you're plotting a novel and you're thinking of your great narrative arc, you wouldn't plot a book like this where a kid basically leaves a school outside New York spends three or four days messing around in New York. Mm. I mean, there's no great dramatic beat in there, is there?
1: No, and also he's just really neurotic. Um, the thing that I think makes it feel modern at all times, like timelessly modern, is how cynical and alienated Holden mm. is. Because I think young people love that idea of that ironic detachment because it's kind of a shortcut to seeming adult. But the thing that strikes me is that um, for all of his declamations of the world being phony and everything's crummy and nothing <laughs> is authentic, he's the one that's really the most inauthentic because he won't mm-hmm. allow himself to really act on his real emotions. He's he's quite stunted.
0: Yeah, you're right. The entire novel, or the for most of it, is this desperate urge to connect. He was basically paying people to speak to him. Like he wants to get drinks with cab drivers. You know, he, it's that, that classic, I think it's maybe the, one of the first sort of instances of that now quite cliched thing of like uh, playing a sex worker to talk to you kind of thing. Right, he yeah. desperately wants to connect, but fails at every hurdle, you know? And um, I think that's, that's
1: sort of central to the tragedy of the whole thing, really. How is it perceived at the time? Was it seen as quite revolutionary? Well the thing is it was it was
0: reviewed well like JD Salinger was a exciting writer for a while people had their eye on him he um you know he came from this like very middle class New York background like him and Holden really do share the same childhood um of this sort of very literary scene he famously went out with Eugene O'Neill's daughter Una O'Neill and was later had her poached by Charlie Chaplin, which is just a mental... That's like a Billy Joel verse in itself, isn't (laughs) it? (laughs) Yeah.
1: I mean, talk about, you know, being cock-blocked by one of the founders of cinema. (laughs) I know. And um, it was reviewed well. People liked
0: it. Some people didn't. You can see why it's a little bit marmitey, and it would be to anyone. But I think the the real power of it was that it was written for adults but was adopted by teenagers. And it just... I think it's really one of those things that it hit them at the right time. And it became so popular with teenagers and its literary merit was so kind of clear that, you know, teachers start bringing it into schools. It's this great text to get, you know, young, disaffected kids interested in reading. And then what then starts is the sort of domino effect of it being banned in schools because of its content. Um, and then I think the more controversial it becomes, the more the the sort of mystique around it inflates, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, in fact, speaking of the censorship, uh, between 1961 and 1982, Catcher in the Rye was the most censored book in high schools and libraries in the United States. And uh, there was a teacher who was uh, briefly fired for assigning Mm. it in class. And uh, in 1978, three members of the school board in Washington state alleged that the book was part of an overall communist plot,
2: well, Katie, there are two hundred and thirty-seven instances of "goddamn." There's fifty-eight bastards, oh. and there's thirty-one "Christ sakes." Well, sounds like a good
1: night out to me. It sounds like a good <laughs> night out, and probably a good reason to ban it from those impressionable young people.
0: But but I really, what I really enjoy about the the controversy bit and the sort of being banned from schools thing is that it does come back to this kind of very common thing that happ- It never goes away of like adults and their opinions of what young people should or shouldn't be reading mm. or listening to or consuming and this sort of notion that never goes away that pop culture is eroding the souls of our children. Like for my generation it was definitely all about Eminem, right? Mm. And, uh, and you know, I remember my parents like, you know, throwing out every time I brought home a copy of the Marshall Mathers LP and then... <laughs> like, it's it, filth. It, it filth and like, you know, there being this sort of great moral crisis over whether or not... Um, you know, Eminem was eroding our souls, and meanwhile, he was writing these very long verses um, about Bush and the Iraq War. And it's like, well, that's the thing that's really killing your kids. Why can't you? Why don't you have the focus for that? And then the same thing happens with Catcher in the Rye, right, where um, it sort of gets swept up in a McCarthyism thing as being sort of anti-society, anti-capitalism, and therefore being implicitly communist, right? Mm. And it's like constantly trying to wrong foot people in the other direction of like here's the thing that's eroding your kids where it's like no I think you're eroding the kids actually I think war is I think you know all these corrupted political movements so I find that really fascinating
1: I didn't realize it effectively the character's having a nervous breakdown over mm. the course of the whole book and he's he's really losing it while the whole time maintaining that it's everybody else's fault like everybody else is crazy mm. and phony and crummy and I'm the only one you know he's he's almost like a proto incel because he's yeah. he's very um dismissive of women and they're wiles, and they're all trying to, you know, pull something over on him, and uh, they're all trying to trick him into something. And of course, that's being a little too harsh, and that's putting a twentieth twenty first century spin on it, I think. Mm. But I do feel like, you know, there's kind of a touch of misogyny going on with him that is really just an expression of how insecure he is. And the only people that he, has a real affection and tenderness for our children, like his younger Mm. sister or even his younger self. You know, he he's very nostalgic for this innocent time. Yeah. And I do
0: think you're right. There are sort of real evidence of misogyny and that kind of thing. And but there's also what's interesting about Holden is because he's he is so young and his perspective and his beliefs and things are constantly shifting. And it's that Extraordinarily teenage thing of being so sure of what you're saying and thinking in the moment you're saying and thinking of it, (laughs) and then immediately it changes. So there are all these moments where, like, you could say he's sort of this proto incel, but there's all these moments of real, like, tenderness, and him saying to this guy, you know, I, I don't think you should say that about a girl if she's nice enough to let you have sex with her <laughs> like, I don't think you should be talking crap about her and and he sort of he talks about um, going on double dates in these sort of like big 50s cars and yeah. how the guy in the front will be getting it's sort of a very it's very rape culture-y but it will be sort of trying to get along with the girl and the girl's saying no and Holden's like I can't I can't continue when that's happening that's awful yeah because you know? he's in
1: the back seat with his girl and, he, and there's yeah. like fumbling around and you know bra strap tango And uh, yeah, yeah, it it is yeah. Reading it from the perspective of now, and you're realizing, yeah, it's all about these guys trying to uh, get it off uh, against the will of the young women.
2: Did you like him? And I know we can't reduce characters in books to whether they are likable. Yeah, but do you think he is likable? And do you think because I I found that the points I'm most sympathetic to him is when he's talking about Phoebe's little sister or Ali, his little brother who's died. And he talks yeah. about the baseball mitt and how Ali has written little poems in it mm. and the affection he's got for his big brother, D.B. Those were the bits when I felt yeah. warmest to him, I think.
0: You, you just kind of feel this poor kid, don't you? Like, there's this thing of his... um the little brother who died and and you get the sense that the quite waspy family are being quite stiff upper lip about it and the mum has her headaches and her nerves, but we don't really get to hear more about that. But then further to that, there's stuff that Holden's keeping even from himself. Like he has this quite predatory moment with a teacher and he says, I've had stuff like that happen to me all the time. And then you sort of think, Yeah, this kid's been going out of boarding schools for years now and like we we know that, like, oh God, he's being he's been molested, you know, and yes. he pushes all his own trauma onto just passers-by and things he hates and people who are phonies and he hates the theatre and he hates films but really it's just this avoidance tactic for all this terrible stuff he's gone through. You feel, you feel for him, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. I found him almost affectedly disaffected. Yes, yes. It, it's very performative. Uh, there's a section in the book that I think is, is really indicative of, of this ongoing tension where he's um, always trying to appear more suave than he actually yes. is and kind of man of the world. Um, but then he's questioning himself throughout. So he's on the train and he runs into the mother of a kid that he's in a uh, class with at his prep school, and the mother uh, strikes up a conversation with him and uh, is saying about this boy, Moro. The mother says, well, perhaps he takes things a little more seriously than he should at his age. Uh, and he's a very sensitive boy. So Holden goes on to say, sensitive, that killed me. That guy Morrow was about as sensitive as a goddamn toilet seat. (laughs) I gave her a good look. She didn't look like any dope to me. She looked like she might have a pretty damn good idea what a bastard she was the mother of. (laughs) But you can't always tell with somebody's mother. I mean, mothers are all slightly insane. The thing is, though, I liked old Morrow's mother. She was all right. Would you care for a cigarette? I asked her. She looked nice smoking. She inhaled it all. But she didn't wolf the smoke down the way most women around her age do. She had a lot of charm. She had quite a lot of sex appeal, too, if you really want to know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so. But th- th- here's the thing: is people get so get bogged down in how important Catcher is, how it sort of influenced all these murderers, all the mystique around it, that people don't talk about how funny it is. Yeah, <laughs> like it's a funny book. Like his observations are genuinely hilarious, particularly when he points out these sort of little pretensions that you yourself, you know, have noticed. You know about or the way he talks about. Um, sort of people going to the theatre and and the sort of performative way they enjoy the theatre. Like, you can say that to anybody now and they'd get it, you know? Yeah. Um, But the suaveness I find so interesting and it's the place where I find the... um, the sort of the idea that this is a war book that isn't about war thing is that he's constantly going around and nobody believes him when he says he, he's he's convinced he looks old, but no one believes him. Right. He's telling everyone he's twenty five or twenty two and everyone's like, you're sixteen and you look sixteen. Because he, he keeps to trying order to Cokes. order yeah. Yeah.
1: he keeps trying to order drinks and, the
2: ultimate teenage yeah. nightmare, yeah. isn't it? You, I'll you just have into,
1: a Coke, I guess. Yeah. yeah.
0: I guess, yeah. But to me that feels like the most um sort of excruciating metaphor for a returning soldier this thing of like these teenage boys who go to do these horrendous things and are scarred from it so literally and like the grey hair is a great uh, leftover of that but that then they come back and they're still children you know and they're still perceived as being 1920, 21 by society but they've lived the lives of grown men who've seen the most traumatic things there I think that that's very affecting He me. says
2: to his daughter at one point doesn't he he says you never get the, the smell of burning human flesh out of your nostrils
0: oh the Salinger said that yeah Salinger yeah. says
2: that to his daughter yeah
0: yeah. It's, it's it's interesting with him isn't it he's like sort of the Greta Garbo of male authors isn't he there's this sort of conception around him that he you know, was an absolute hermit and he didn't want to see anybody he didn't want any press but actually, you know, the more biographers look at him, he seems to have lots of very fulfilling relationships in his life with lots of people, was very helpful to lots of young writers. He just didn't want any fame. And that is just completely alien, isn't it, to most people, the idea that someone would write this great thing and not want to be feted publicly about it.
2: Yeah, and while you write, there's, there's a, a quote from when he did an interview with the New York Times in 1974, and he says, there is a marvellous piece in not publishing. I love to write, but just for myself and my pleasure. Yeah. And that's so that's so counterintuitive for most writers who, yeah. subconsciously at least, want an audience and want their stories to be heard.
0: Yeah. Completely. I do get it, though. I've got this sort of running metaphor in my head that having a book out is a bit like having a dead spouse in that in that, um, the, your relationship with that piece of work is over. All the memories that you had together, you and this manuscript, are done. But now everybody else has a relationship with it. So you become the living conduit to the dead thing. And everyone's like we loved your husband. <laughs> and you're like, well, yes. you didn't know him. Not
1: like I did. And I think
0: I think Salinger was the ultimate dead spouse novelist. <laughs> it's like, you don't know, Holden. I don't want to hear about how you love my husband.
1: There are problematic aspects of his interactions and relationships with women. Mm. Um, apparently, he was very controlling with his wife, Claire, and he isolated her from her friends. He also very famously had a relationship at age 53 with the 18-year-old writer Joyce Maynard after he wrote fan letters to her. Yeah, it's what a rough a... talk, isn't it? Yeah, what was the <laughs> what was the score there?
0: I guess it turns out famous and influential men love young women. Yeah, <laughs> strange, isn't it? it, yeah. tur- it tur- but I do also think and I'm I'm not looking to be an apologist for these like slightly predatory relationships and and I also don't want to speak for those women's experience either, because for all I know, they've had very you know, rich and foundational moments with this man. So who knows? But I will say there is a popular kind of theory that um, people stop evolving past their own point of trauma. And if we think of Salinger as somebody who had very serious PTSD following his own experience as a young man, I don't really think he matured past 24, 25 in his own mind. And he never wrote anyone who was older than that either. Like all, like Franny and Zoe and the Glass family and, and for Esme with Love and Squalor, it's all young people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why he surrounded himself with young people. It's kind of... But that was also sort of a, a theory we put on Michael Jackson a lot, right? And, and Neverland and all that. There was kind of this accepted... Um, rhetoric for a while that Michael Jackson had this the the trauma of fame came for him and he never evolved past the the idea of being sort of 12 years old and everyone was kind of quite permissive in a society wide thing of like oh he's just a sort of grown child you know so I would wonder if there was some of that going on with Salinger as well
2: Katie we've learnt so much I'm going to get a towel I'm going to fan you you can fan me while we have some adverts Hello there this is my friend Joe Hi Hi Now, Joe plays rugby for England. Yeah, what's your point? Come on. Well, Joe presents a podcast and it's my firm belief that you should listen to it. Very interesting. And here's why. Because it's not actually a rugby podcast because, well, let's face it, there's billions of them already. No, 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 no.
3: It's about you, the listener, and the jobs you do. If you're a teacher, an astronaut, a tree surgeon or a chef.
2: Then we've got loads of questions for you. The Joe Marler Show. Because everyone is interesting if you ask the right questions. That's a great line. That's a that is a very good line from you, Tom. Thank you, Joe. You want to find it? Search for the Joe Marler Show in your podcast app. Because everyone is interesting if you ask the right questions. <carrying quits> <coughs>
1: We were talking about how Holden Caulfield is lost as a character. Um, And it does seem like Salinger was a seeker uh, as well. And throughout his life, he was a a Zen Buddhist that happened after the war. And then he Mm. was also into various isms
3: um, that
1: he would enlist his wife. Like, you know, okay, this week we're doing this. You got to study up on on this crazy cult. And uh, one of the things that he got involved in, I was interested to see, was uh, the... Orgon accumulators, which are also known as sex boxes, <laughs> made by Wilhelm Reich. Uh-oh. And I'm showing you guys a photograph of a lady sitting inside the organ accumulator the organ accumulator. The idea was you'd sit naked inside this uh, telephone booth-sized box.
2: It's basically a box, isn't it, Katie? It looks like you're shutting someone in a cupboard for being naughty.
1: Yes. There's a little window in in the naughty cupboard, <laughs> and you sit in this naughty cupboard naked, and you just let your vibes accumulate. And apparently, <laughs> um now what we're doing right now. Yes.
0: Yeah, accumulating right, vibes in our smallest room. To we we not tell you about that.
1: <laughs> oh, we're, we're taking your vibe. We're and stealing your essence. The idea is that you gather your cosmic cons energy and it can cure colds it can cure cancer, Ooh. it can cure impotence oh. uh, so Salinger had one of these organ accumulators.
2: Such a great name, be a great name for a band actually organ accumulators
1: <laughs> It's so 80s isn't it, yeah. so new romantic So you know I don't know accumulators? Uh, that could have possibly uh, I don't know if it led to his writer's block, well in fact he didn't have writer's block he just didn't publish yeah. his books but he was a, a quirky guy shall we say <laughs> certainly a quirky guy
2: you also wonder if he was so private and he was writing for himself how he felt about the mass market success of his book yeah. so it, i don't know how many copies it really sells but you hear stories that it still sells a million copies a year yeah which is extraordinary isn't it um and then how he would feel about the the way that his book is taken up by a couple in particular of Mm. Lunatics, how it's taken up by Mark Chapman, who shoots John Lennon, how it's taken up by John Hinckley, who makes an assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan when he's president. I mean, Chapman has, the day that he goes to the Dakota building in New York, he has bought another copy. He's had copies before. He he buys a fresh copy of Catcher in the Rye and famously writes inside it to Holden Caulfield from Holden Caulfield, which is... It's
1: chilling, isn't it? Yeah. If if you're the
2: author who's written that book... And he
1: writes, he writes, this is my statement. Like, as if it's his manifesto. Oh, my God. And, uh, I mean, there's another serial killer, very popular amongst the serial killer demographic. Robert John Bardo was carrying the book when he murdered the actress Rebecca Schaefer in 1989. He famously walked up to her front door in Beverly Hills and, and killed her. And um, what do you think it is about Catcher in the Ride that's so inspiring to people who want to snuff out the lives of others? It's so interesting, isn't it? Because
0: I think the... Um the most tempting way to view that whole thing is like, oh, it's a haunted book. <laughs> like, it's a possessed text, cursed. you know. It's a cursed text. <laughs> then when you read it, it's quite a, you know, it's, it's it, there's nothing really that persuasive about killing people and especially he's quite a pacifist, is Zara Holden. Like, he's quite you know, affectionate. And I I think what it actually has more to say about really is how when people are missing the infrastructure to help them with their own mental illnesses, how frequently they'll turn to pop culture as a sort of a bomb kind of thing, you know? Yeah. I think people also like making the connection more and more. There's a couple of people who are like, and Catcher in the Rye was in his home. Which if you sell
2: a million copies a year, it might be.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Totally. Um... And it goes right back to the heart of the song that we're talking about, where it's this century where we're all just fostered by pop culture and less and less by, you know, infrastructure, by the army, by sort of this, this kind of a rigid schooling system or a rigid moral code. When all that falls away and all that's left is books, movies and music,
1: you know, it's quite interesting. It's one of the century, it's a choose your own adventure. <laughs> yeah. It can go either
0: way. Um. I think the what's so interesting about Catcher as well is that it's been sort of preserved in amber. Like I, I'm, I'm looking at you both with your copies now and it's the exact same copy, right? It's yeah. the red and white sort of Penguin Classics edition and that's the only copy I've ever really seen in the UK. But it, a movie was never made, famously, so there's no sense of that manuscript becoming de by, you know, a young Leonardo DiCaprio or a young John Cusack or a young Marlon Brando as Holden Caulfield. There's no film tie-in. There's no, like, IMDb
1: profile. And it sort of gets
0: frozen in its own classic status. It remains cult because pop culture hasn't infected it or something.
1: Why do you think that People have never succeeded in actually making a film out of it. Well,
0: first, he won't—he rel- never relinquished the rights because he was so distaste for the movie industry, as is very clear in Catcher itself. But I think what I love about the fact that Catcher was never a movie and probably will never be a movie is I like that famous people want something they can't have. Like um, I, I read this interview, this quote, with John Cusack where he said he cried the day he turned 21 because he knew he was too old to play Holden <sighs> Caulfield. And I was like, good, you can't have it. But what I what I also love about it is that because people can't use the text itself, people take the spirit of the text and make movies that are very like it. Like, so Igby Goes Down, if anyone's seen that movie, yeah. mm-hmm. starring um, Kieran Culkin, which is basically as close to that as you could get. Um Rushmore, which is an early Wes Anderson movie, is so clearly inspired by Catcher in the Rye, down to the fact that the character is the um, manager of the fencing team.
1: Oh, right.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so you get all these little, like, inspiration flashpoints in all these great movies that because they're not literal adaptations of Catcher in the Rye, get to stand by themselves, but Mm. get to sort of bow their heads to
1: this great work, you know? Yeah, the best of all worlds. Yeah. Uh, Apparently, Salinger felt that he was the only person who could play Holden Caulfield, and 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 incidentally, he was an actor. Was uh, he? Yeah, in, oh, yeah, in in his uh, childhood, and so that was really another reason why he just thought, well, it's not going to be, it's not going to be Jerry Lewis. It's not going to be one of those yeah. Hollywood phonies. It's got to be me or no one.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I would absolutely hate the idea of like a Timothy Chalamet or a Ezra Miller or a Harry Styles, you know, turning it into this sort of. Um, it's kind of glossy matinee moment you know
2: maybe it's maybe it's those great books the books that you most perfectly realize an interior vision of the world that are the hardest yeah. ones to film because everyone will be slightly offended by the version that they're given yeah um a bit like catch 22 which is a Different book, but a lot of people would associate it with it. The film of that is nowhere near as good as a book, is it?
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, no, no one who's talking about Catch 22 is ever talking about the movie. No one you know? talks about
2: Art Garfunkel in Catch 22, do they?
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: oh well, my God. Art does all <laughs> <told> the time, <laughs> non stop. The cultural commentator David Reisman in 1961 was trying to explain the book's appeal at a talk in Japan, and this is what he told the Japanese. Boys are frustrated because they aren't cowboys, and girls are frustrated because they aren't boys. Mm -hmm. He went on to say... Women, he's a sociologist, so he says, women (laughs) (laughs) have been the audience for American fiction and for movies. There are no girl stories comparable to Catcher in the Rye. Yet girls can adapt themselves and identify with such a book Mm. while a boy can't so easily identify with a girl, he reckons. Um, He goes on to say that in the literary marketplace, um, readers aren't turned off. If the characters are male, but only if they're female. After all, how many Boy Scouts and Explorer Scouts have been moved by reading the bell jar? Yeah. Wow. So this None. was 19, yeah, 1961. <laughs> Zero. 1961. 1961, he's saying basically, sorry, ladies, boys are automatically yeah. the stand in for all of your emotions and uh, worldview and insecurities, but uh, the favor doesn't go the other way.
0: Yeah, and that's that's a constant thing I think with all sort of media, right? That like, and particularly in film, where we're sort of women are expected to relate to male characters, but very seldomly is a male audience expected to go see a movie with women in it. You know, and
1: and is there a, are there that many movies that have women in it who are the hero who are on a quest who yeah. are searching for meaning in their life or identity? So, yeah, I mean, I think in a way the fact that Holden is so Kind of at sixes and sevens in his quest because he's not even sure what his quest is. Is he quitting school? Is he going to a new school? Mm. Or you know, is he gonna go and uh, throw himself on the mercy of his parents? He doesn't know. So I guess I gotta say, in a way, it is kind of a universal problem that both young men and young women can relate to.
0: I'm interested in what you guys think is like, so we we sort of know. Because of that last chapter in the end that he, you know, he ends up in a sort of um, a psychiatric hospital. He's about to be shipped off to yet another school, which makes my heart break. It's like this kid should not be sent to
2: school after school. Let him live at home for a bit.
0: Let him live at home. Yeah. Let him hang out with Phoebe for a oh, while. You please. know, for yeah. the love of God. Um, what do you think happens, told Holden?
2: That's a really does good he, question. Does he get
0: drafted for Vietnam? You know, like, what's the deal?
2: Does he ever solve his problems? As he yes. matures and becomes a bit older, does he ever yeah. look back at himself and think, I was clueless, yeah. but I've learned? Is he driving a Cadillac with big fins? <laughs> is he is he working some phony's job in advertising yeah. or something with I his think, waspy background?
1: I think what he does is he fails upward. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's family connections. He's got a really bougie family. Uh, and he continues his uh, very storied career as an alcoholic Mm -hmm. because he is very fond of the old uh, winky-blinky juice, as we learn (laughs) from his many late nights in various piano bars. So I think he becomes a hopeless alcoholic. Do you think he
2: ever gets together with Jane? Do you think he ever calls Jane?
1: I kind of want to read Jane's book, honestly.
2: (laughs) Do you think Jane cares about him? Does she feel the same way about Holden as he feels about her?
0: I think... Oh, it's, it's a, that tale as old as time, like, girl keeps a male friend on the leash for, just yanks it every couple of years. Whenever Jane's feeling a bit low, she hold holding a ring. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Until <laughs> so she eventually gets married. But yeah, I was very arrested by um, that passage towards the end of the book where he's talking to his teacher. I don't know, it's very, a kind of foreshadowing moment of like, you're going to be one of those guys that sits in a bar and hates anyone who comes in and looks like they play football in high school. Or you're going to be one of those guys that sits in an office and hates the stenographer. But either way, it's all going to be you sitting around hating people. And he's
1: like, no, no, no. I don't hate people that much, I swear. It's just – it really breaks my heart that bit, you know? You know what? You're so right, Caroline. That is the one bit where I think we do see the author – making a pronouncement about the character because really f- for the most part i agree with you tom that we're just in the character's head and and we're really in his skin and in his world but i think that's the one bit where we pull away for a wide shot and, yeah, and we can see a so projection true.
2: what would you say the legacy of Catcher in the rise caroline today
1: it's interesting because i think it would still
0: be a foundational sort of um, book in anyone starting a young adult library in a shop or anything, right? But I do think that um, it's interesting. Cause I remember the first time I saw um, The Godfather. And uh, I was in my 20s, but I had seen every single Simpsons episode ever made, right? And so all these sort of like, I was like, oh, that's the Fat Tony reference. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And so I think even teenagers who are big readers, because so many things have come after Catcher who have, that have sort of used that voice and used that sort of um, way of telling a story in the same way, I think... They would read Catcher now and think, oh, Fat Tony, you
1: know, rather oh, than. So, in a way, it would almost lose the impact because, yeah. it, in the way that it, when you see it Star Wars so much. Yeah, you yeah. see Star Wars now and you think, well, that we've seen that done over and over and done better. And, yeah. You know, because you weren't there at the beginning when it was completely extraordinary and and sweet generous, you know, yeah. just absolutely stood on its own.
0: I had this experience recently where I um, finally picked up Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain and I was like, oh, R.I.P. to this man but this is dull as shit <laughs> I was like, I, I, have no like him just being the bad boy of the kitchen I was like I was so self-aggrandizing I was so bored and everyone was like yes but you have to understand that the bad boy of the kitchen wasn't a cliche when he was doing it I was like oh okay you kind of do have to remember that with things like Catcher, anything that goes on to have this great life and inspires so much that comes after it you do have to have that slightly forgiving backwards glance don't you Sorry to the Bourdain family.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Caroline, thanks so much for coming on We Didn't Start the Fire.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I love this podcast and I love the song it's based on. So, delighted
2: to be here. Feel free to sing it as you leave the studio. We always do.
1: (laughs) What's so... (laughs) Don't laugh at me whistling in a jaunty <laughs> fashion. I wish I could
0: whistle as well. What's so nice, it must be nice for you guys as well, is um, you guys have done, done enough episodes that when you're scrolling through the podcast, it's like North Korea, South Korea, Maryland. 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 It's so
1: much fun just to scroll through. And don't forget, Stooda <laughs>
2: <laughs> Katie, as always when we do this show, I find myself wondering what Billy was thinking. And sometimes you think... Did Billy really know that person and that place? But with Catcher in the Rye, he's a kid growing up in New York. He's a young boy. He's a creative type. I think it's quite a natural fit for him, isn't it?
1: He has a well-thumbed, if not positively dog-eared copy (laughs) of Catcher in the Rye in his boyhood shelf. So when he's not practicing his scales at the piano or he's not down at the gym practicing his punches
2: or watching the baseball because he loves his baseball
1: yeah he loves his baseball so when he's not doing all of those things he is practicing being a disaffected alienated too cool for school teenager i think probably young billy was more earnest than holden caulfield but that's what he's aiming for is hipness
2: And all those bars that Holden Caulfield goes to where people are tinkling the ivories, Billy would find himself in those very same places because he is the piano man.
1: You made a very, very compelling case there for why Billy included Catcher on the Rise. So yeah, thumbs up to Billy. What are we going to be enjoying next week, Tom?
2: I believe, Katie, it's Eisenhower. President Dwight Eisenhower of Eisenhower fame.
1: Okay, And if you're in the mood for even more podcasts, can I recommend to you, listeners, a little something called Alan Cumming's Shelves. You can join actor Alan Cumming as he takes an artifact off his extensive shelves and tells you the story behind it with a little help from some friends.
2: Katie, he's spoken to Sir Ian McKellen about a dog collar, Cindy Lauper about a pair of leather gloves. You'll even get to hear Jerry Halliwell talk about Alan's Spice Girls Lunchbox.
1: I don't know if I want to know about Alan's Spice Girls Lunchbox or what's in it. The stories are hilarious, and there's so many fantastic guests coming on to help Alan tell the tales of his life. So please do check it out. Just search for Alan Cumming Shelves on your podcast app.
2: Crowd Network. A place where you belong.
3: Hey, podcast listeners. I'm Paul Brandis, introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in depth look at the seemingly unconnected events